thought this past week, and it tied to where I wanted to go this morning, of, my, of a story that my dad loved to tell. His was a much shorter version, but this is the gist of how it went. One dark, rainy night on a lonely road in Montana, a salesman had a flat tire. He went to his trunk, pulled out his spare tire, then realized he had no lug wrench. Now what? Well, he then spotted a farmhouse nearby. He set out on foot in this rain to to this farmhouse, figuring the farmer would have a lug wrench he could borrow. And as he walked toward the farmhouse, he began to rehearse in his mind what he thought was going to take place as he finally got to the farmer's door and knocked on the door so late at night. So he started to think to himself and play out this scenario. Well, you know, this farmer probably won't even answer the door. And if he does answer the door, he'll probably be so furious at being bothered this hour at night. The salesman actually started to get angry as he played out this scenario in his mind. He thought to himself, you know, I, I know, I know what the farmer's going to say. He's going to say, why are you getting me out of bed in the middle of the night? What kind of idiot drives without a lug wrench? The salesman was getting all worked up as he imagined what the farmer would be thinking. Oh, I know, too. He's going to say, what a, what a selfish... I'm thinking to myself here about him. I'm fuming inside. He's just a selfish old jerk that won't even help me. Finally, the salesman reaches the house frustrated, drenched, bangs on the door. Who's there? A voice called out from the window overhead. Well, you know good and well who it is, yelled the salesman, his face red with anger. It's me. And you know what? You can keep your old lug wrench. I wouldn't borrow it if it's the last one in the county. (laughs) And I thought my dad would use that to say, we play out in our minds scenarios that may or may not happen. Now, that's exactly what I do. I mean, have you ever had an internal dialogue as you anticipate some conversation? Ever got yourself all worked up imagining the encounter that that you figure was going to play out? I know exactly what this, I know what my spouse is going to say. I've done this. So I walk into that scenario, ready to respond to their objections. I walk in assuming what the other person is thinking. My assumption, of course, may be correct, but it may also be off. Ever wonder what someone else is thinking? (laughs) Ever wonder what someone else is thinking? And for someone who speaks for a living, I'd love to know what you're thinking as I preach. Or perhaps it's better that I don't. It may look like you're super engaged, and what I'm really talking about, when what you're really thinking about, who's going to win the Super Bowl tonight? For Go 49ers. Now I really got you going there. But I wonder, as I'm preaching, if this illustration that I just spoke of, it connects. Or if what I just said was too blunt and maybe shocking. I wonder, I wonder if you're, if you're really reflecting on the passage that I'm, that, I'm, that I'm sharing about in the morning or are you just thinking about what you need to pick up in Hannaford's on the way home? 
I wonder if what I said made sense to you and if, if you're tracking with me or, or if it's really speaking to where you live life. All these thoughts are going on in my mind in a short amount of time. But I think it happens to all of us. Whether you're up front preaching or teaching or maybe giving a presentation or, or giving a sales pitch or you're engaged in a conversation, you, you, you just, I wonder what that person's thinking right now. Well, as we come to this passage of Scripture, it's as if Paul here, the writer of this letter, knows what his hearers are thinking. And he anticipates their objections. Now, what is different and uniquely different, really, about what we have in front of us is that in our own ability to anticipate what someone else is thinking, it's that difference here is that these are words that are under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And like everything else we have in Scripture, these are words breathed by God, so we have exactly what God wants us to have here. So we mustn't miss the divine element of Paul's ability to anticipate their objections. All right, if you're not there, turn with me. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the verses that Dan just read for us, verses 1 through 8. And as always, uh, I must kind of set the chapter 3 in its context. What else is going on around it or leading up to this? Now, chapter 3 is part of a bigger section that began in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and carries all the way through to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. It's that big section there, 118 to 320, that's often characterized as the bad news. And the question that ties that section together, 118 to 320, is the question, what's wrong with humanity? What is wrong with humanity? And that is followed up by a second major question, what has God done about it? What has God done about it? And the answer to that second question is what will burst forth when we get to chapter 3, verse 21, and we will get there, and it will carry us all the way through to Romans chapter 8. What has God done about it? And while we wait in anticipation for that good news to explode from this book of Romans, I can't completely leave it alone in our time uh, in, in these tougher passages. And speaking of tough passages... These verses we're looking at this morning, Romans 3, 1 through 8, is a candidate for the toughest passage in Romans. Some commentaries that I wrote says the toughest passage in Scripture. Now that really motivated me as I began this week. Let's just skip over this and go somewhere else. See, in one of the great challenges here in this session is its application since the primary audience is the Jewish people. But I am hopeful that its relevance will be abundantly clear. After all, all of Scripture, uh, it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all of Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I'm hanging on to that truth. All right, as we come to this section, imagine with me now uh, a courtroom scene. You know, in a court of law, there are those who present the case, the prosecuting attorney, hoping to prove the guilt of the defendant. 
And he lays out his claims, hoping that beyond a shadow of a doubt, the defendant is found guilty. And that's what Paul has done in Romans chapter 1 and in Romans chapter 2. He says that not only are the Gentiles guilty before the supreme and righteous judge, God himself, but he has just spoken that the Jews are also guilty before God the judge. And it's right here that the Jewish people acting as their own defense attorneys would stand up and say, I object. I object. And Paul then goes on to answer some of the objections the Jews might have. And he uses here a rhetorical uh, literary device that addresses their objections without perhaps those objections even being verbally spoken. He's answering their questions before they ask them. It really, it's like a volley in a game of volleyball. It goes back and forth. In these eight verses, Paul is imagining a dialogue with the church in Rome, particularly the Jewish people, as to their objections to what he has just been saying, especially his words about not trusting in, the, in their religious practices and heritage, heritage and advantages. All right. To help us get our minds around this passage this morning, I have outlined it this way. Put it in contemporary language. First objection. If spiritual upbringing does not save us, then does it have any value at all? If spiritual upbringing does not save us, then does it have any value at all? Second objection is if people are unfaithful, does that affect God's faithfulness? And then the third objection, if sin highlights God's righteousness, then should we be held accountable for sin? All right. First objection, stay with me. First objection, if spiritual upbringing does not save us, then does it have any value at all? In other words, is there any value in having a rich spiritual heritage? All right, verse 1, Romans 3. Paul lets an imaginary objector ask this question. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? You see, they were God's chosen people. The Old Testament is very clear on that. But what good is it? Especially when you consider the downside, if you will, to being God's chosen people and the hardships they have had to endure. I can't help but think of uh, Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> the patriarch, Tevier, is despondent over bad news he just received. He, he's despondent, discouraged, and frustrated at the hardships of a Jewish man. So he stops at one point. He looks up to heaven and he says, Dear God, I know, I know, we are the chosen people. But once in a while, can't you choose someone else? <laughs> That's the feeling. I mean, if being chosen doesn't let us off the hook and if special favor doesn't come with it, special privileges, then choose someone else. What good is it? Now remember, Paul has just said back in chapter 2 that God will judge everyone and do so without favoritism. Everyone will be without excuse on judgment day for God has made himself known through the external voice of creation. He has made himself known through the internal voice of the conscience. And even those who have the special privilege of being God's chosen people are not immune to God's judgment. And as a matter of fact, 
As a matter of fact, the greater risk for those with spiritual privileges, the greater risk for those with spiritual privileges that they trust in their religion for salvation. See, overconfidence in religious heritage and overconfidence in religious knowledge and even overconfidence in certain religious practices can be lethal. So based on those words, Paul says in essence, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. If we're sinners like the Gentiles, why bother being Jewish? I mean, what's the point? And church, this is, this is no frivolous objection. If Jews are guilty and lost under the wrath of God, just like everyone else, was all that God did for them all for nothing? What Paul is saying, if not understood correctly, is an attack on the entire Old Testament. For beginning with the patriarch Abraham, the structure of the rest of the Old Testament is based on the Jews being God's special chosen people who have tremendous advantages. Now is Paul's gospel now doing away with the special position of God's chosen people? If so, then Paul's gospel will not stand. I mean, it's a major objection. See, to poke at the Jews is in essence to attack the integrity of the God who chose those people. So their objection, what advantage is there? Paul answers that objection in verse two. He says, much in every way. First of all, they have been trusted with the very words of God. Now, he says here, first of all, at least in this translation, he says, first of all, and by that, you would then expect a, a list, second, third, fourth. I remember my first year of Bible college, if I, if I submitted a paper or gave a speech or gave a sermon that said, first of all, but never had a second or third point, it would be graded down. You gotta have a second. Well, Paul says first of all, and you go, well, where's the second thing? Where's the third? Where's his list? We won't see that until we get to chapter nine of Romans, verses three through five. And it's in chapter nine of Romans that Paul will then list the other advantages they have as God's chosen people. This here is just a brief detour to answer the objection until he gets to Romans chapter nine. But we shouldn't dismiss lightly the benefits, the advantages of being Jewish. Now, let me bring it to home here. Some of you have the advantages of growing up Christian. Now, I wanna speak to something right here. For some of you who have grown up Christian, listen, Don't belittle your testimony. To stay on course with the Lord, no small thing. I mean, we hear those testimonies, and I remember this as a teenager. We hear those testimonies of God dramatically saving someone out of drugs and a a wild lifestyle, and and I'm one such testimony, but we tend to go, wow, what a testimony, wow. Mine's so boring. I mean, it's a wow to God's grace, absolutely. But listen, don't think that then yours is a boring testimony. It's no less of a wow to God's grace. Because your testimony, that boring one, highlights God's keeping promise. It highlights his faithfulness. Don't depreciate its value. Growing up Christian doesn't save you, but there are tremendous advantages. The Jews had a great advantage, but not an absolute advantage. 
And here in chapter 3, he gives only one advantage. Now, Paul's intent here, perhaps, and speaking of this first of all, is the idea of this is the most important advantage. Some translate, matter of fact, first of all, as chiefly or primarily. And that's a real possibility. I tend to think that's what he's doing here. This is one advantage that stands out over all the rest. What is that advantage? You see it there. They were given, they were entrusted the very words of God or the oracles of God. What's that referred to? They were given the Old Testament. And Paul then (laughs) turns their objection on its head. For special privilege means special responsibility. Ray Stedman offers a really helpful illustration, at least it was for me. He says, let's imagine a remote island permanently shrouded in darkness. There's only one way off this island of darkness by means of this narrow footbridge that stretches across a deep chasm. Let us further suppose now that everyone on this island is given a a tiny pen light. I mean, it's so small, it can only illuminate the darkness for like one foot in any direction. But one group of people was given a a powerful searchlight with a beam so strong it can cut through the darkness for miles and miles and miles. And although the searchlight was given to this group in order to help them find that narrow bridge and, and to help others also find that narrow bridge, they used that searchlight instead to search for needles and haystacks. Are you using what you know of God's word to search for needles in the haystack? What I mean by that is do you go to it to argue your point on trivial matters? I'm going to show you. Do you major or minor issues? That's what the Jews were doing here. They were entrusted with the very words of God. They were to be the light to all the nations. They wasted the light they were given. They searched for needles and haystacks. They used it to argue over trivialities. Oh, you can't do this on the Sabbath. Well, you can do this, but don't make sure it doesn't look like this. They spent all their time there. So the objection falls to the ground because the Jews weren't meeting the responsibilities that came with their special favor from God. Objection overruled. Again, let me bring it closer to home. Most of us in this room have at least one Bible in our homes. If not, we can find it pretty easily. Most of us in this room, we can listen to any preacher anytime we want. Most of us in this room have sat in on Bible studies, gone to youth group, attended Sunday school, have Bible study tools at our fingertips. I'd say those are advantages. If you've been under the teaching of God's word, it gives you an edge. We've been entrusted with the very words of God. What are we doing with that? What are we doing with the the light we have been given? Special privilege means special responsibilities. As Jesus put it, to whom much is given... Much is required. All right, second objection. 
If people are unfaithful, does that affect God's faithfulness? People are unfaithful. Does that affect God's faithfulness? In other words, will the fickleness of God's people change God's faithfulness? All right, look with me to chapter 3, verse 3. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? In other words, will God's plans be thwarted because of disobedience? Will God keep up his end of the bargain? In other words, will the faithlessness of God's people cancel out God's faithfulness? That's the objection. And Paul answered to this objection. Look at it, verse 4. He says, not at all. Now, these are very strong words in the original. No English translation really can capture it. Not at all. It, it might be, we might say, not in your life. Not in a million years. Not at all. He says, let God be true. Every man a liar. As it is written, he now quotes from Psalm 51. Say, you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. And Paul is reaching back to Psalm 51 when David finally came clean with the sin of adultery, lying, and murder. It is when David finally agrees with God's assessment of his sin and that God is right to judge him for his wrong against him. That's the heart of true confession. Yes, God, you are correct. You'd have every right to do this. David now in that Psalm 51 is repenting of his unfaithfulness. So Paul uses that. He says, let God be true here. That David's unfaithfulness did not cancel out God's faithfulness. He would carry out his promises through one sinful human being after another. Just read the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. There's a bunch of people who really messed up. But God always keeps his word no matter what others do. For he is faithful. For that is who he is. Let God be true. It's unthinkable to say otherwise. Now we wrestle with this ourselves. Let's bring it, let's bring it here again. We wrestle with this ourselves. Is the untrustworthiness of people who call themselves Christians proof that God can't be trusted? Consider how Christians can give Christianity a black eye. Consider those outside the church who don't want anything to do with Christianity. Oh, I don't want anything to do with them. Or consider even those inside the church who experience a crisis of faith because of the dumb things that have been done in the name of Christianity. That's not to be a reflection of God. That's his point. A few years ago, apologist Tim, Timothy Paul Jones was being interviewed about a book he had just written. And the interview asked him this question. He said, in your final chapter of your book, you talk about one barrier to the faith is the way Christians, both throughout history and today, have used the Bible in ways that are abusive to the Bible. So many today find it difficult to trust a book that was used to justify the Crusades or, justify, uh, or, or used to justify chattel slavery. How would you answer the individual struggling with that objection? Now, I love, I love Jones's answer. He says, well, my answer is the Beatles' White Album. Okay. As we all know, he said, the Beatles' White Album, especially the song Helter Skelter, was used by Charles Manson as an excuse for the Manson murders. 
He felt like the White Album was calling him to commit all of those murders, and yet nobody has ever indicted Paul McCartney for those murders. He goes on. And the reason they haven't is because of the fact that the misuse of the White Album doesn't reflect on its creator. Just because the White Album was misused, he says, doesn't mean the creator of it was at fault. And I think we have to help people recognize that. The Bible is used to justify terrible things, but was it rightly used for those things? Faithlessness of people does not cancel out the faithfulness of God. It's not a reflection on Him. Objection overruled. All right, third objection. I will get you out of here before the Super Bowl starts, I promise. Sin highlights... Sin highlights God's righteousness. That's 6.30. I got all kinds of time. If sin highlights God's righteousness, then should we be held accountable for sin? If sin highlights God's righteousness, then should we be held accountable for sin? In other words, I'm going to put it this way. Am I doing God a favor by sinning? <laughs> yeah, we should have a smile on that one. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness, he says, brings out God's righteousness more clearly as the objection, what shall we say? God's unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument, meaning human logic. Verse 7 carries the same idea. Someone might argue if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, then why am I still condemned as a sinner? And some are even accusing Paul of communicating that message. You know, keep sinning, it glorifies God. And they were slanderously reporting that Paul was saying, look at the middle of verse 8. Paul, they're saying Paul's saying this. Let us do evil that good may result. Paul wasn't saying that. As a matter of fact, later on in his letter, and we'll get to it, in Romans chapter 6, Paul will ask a similar question. Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? One commentary put it this way. He said, according to this reasoning, the worse we are, the better. The more wicked we are, the more conspicuous will be the mercy of God in our pardon. If doing wrong makes God look good, then I will really do wrong to make God look really good. (laughs) That makes about as much sense as trying to get as sick as we can so that doctors have a chance to display their skills of curing that sickness. Or, it makes about as much sense as going around and lighting fires so that firemen can show off how good they are in putting them out. It makes about as much sense as we should promote crime so that judges can then put more criminals in prison and look really good. This really is crazy, crazy thinking. It's absurd. It makes about as much sense as this one lawyer going hard after one witness on the stand, okay? This is what he said to this witness. When he went, had you gone and had she, if she wanted to and were able, for the time being, excluding all the restraints on her not to go, gone also, would he have brought you, meaning you and she, with him to the station? You go, huh? Well, the other lawyer stood up and he said, I object. That question should be taken out and shot. Yes, yes. I think that's a sentiment of Paul here. Those questions, these objections here, especially verses 5 through 8, should be taken out and shot. They are absurd. 
So he answers their objection by saying, verse 6, certainly not. That is really stupid. That's my translation, not necessarily what I said. God forbid. If that were so, he goes on, how could God judge the world? Or his answer down in verse 7, my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness so increases glory. Why am I still condemned as a sinner? And he concludes the end of verse 8, their condemnation is deserved. In other words, if these are the kind of questions an objector might ask, then all that's left for them is condemnation. They're just trying to justify something. To even go there and think that your sin glorifies God, that it makes God look good, that you somehow help God out by sinning, is to simply look for justification for what you're doing. And you know what? Some people want to spin God's word and do all these kind of mental gymnastics to get God's word to agree with them to justify their wrong behavior. Listen, don't play games with God's word. Don't do it. Because really what we're actually doing with that attitude is we're justifying our sin. It's to treat lightly the nature of sin. Many years ago, the House of Representatives voted unanimously to reveal the names of all past and present members who have bounced checks at the House Bank. When the list was finally released, it contained 355 names. Many of the elected officials never even bothered to balance their checkbooks. One official wrote 972 bad checks. Another one wrote 716 bad checks. The one who wrote 716 rubber checks, he was at a a, a press conference and he loudly proclaimed that since no public money was involved, it was nobody else's business. It's personal, he said, trying to justify it. Another elected official, Charles Wilson, made these comments. It's not a crime like child abuse, translation. It's not so bad. He also said, if you've ever bounced a check, vote for me. If not, vote for my opponent. Translation, everybody does it. He went on to say, the system is all fouled up. Translation, it's not my fault. And then he finished up by saying, it's no big deal. Translation, it's no big deal. See, it's best to try not to weasel out of your sin, but rather allow that sin to drive you to a Savior. Max Lucado said it this way. He said, confession is not telling God what he doesn't know. Impossible. Confession is not complaining. If I merely recite my problems and rehash my woes, I'm whining. Confession is not blaming. Pointing fingers at others without pointing any at me feels good, but it doesn't promote healing. Confession is so much more, he goes on to say. Confession is a radical reliance on grace, a proclamation of our trust in God's goodness. What I did was bad, we acknowledge, but your grace is greater than my sin, so I confess it. See, the gospel changes everything. Because the amazing truth is that no matter how much sin you brought into this room today, you can have a right standing with God by putting your trust in Him. You can say, yeah, 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 I was bad, I acknowledge that, but your grace is greater than that. 
And that's why I confess it to you. See, by doing that, by trusting in what Jesus has done for us, that's the only way to escape God's judgment. See, part of the gospel is that Christ will return to judge the earth. And we're going to get to that in Romans even. You see, God is justified in judging and condemning sin, even whose sin magnifies his righteousness, his mercy, and his grace. Objection overruled. Now, the overall answer to all of this this morning, and I want us to grab this, the overall answer to all these objections is God's faithfulness. He will do what he says he will do. Even if every person were false to God, God would still be faithful and true. God is faithful even when we are faithless. Aren't you glad for that? Bottom line, God's faithfulness guarantees that everything is going according to plan. Bottom line, God's faithfulness guarantees that everything is going according to plan. In the time of uh, World War II, there was a great German preacher by the name of Helmut Thielecki. Yeah, I, I don't know if I said his last name right. The preacher, Helmut Thielecki, lost a university position because he opposed Hitler. He endured humiliating interrogations by the, U, by the SS. He faced the constant threat of imprisonment. And as the war grew to a close, he walked to his Stuttgart church one day, only to find it bombed to rubble, and he returned home to find his house totally destroyed. His heart nearly broke when he came across his famished children licking the pictures of food and recipe books. And each week, he would stand in the pulpit that was made for this particular situation and try to bring a message of hope to his demoralized congregation. During the midst of all of this, he wrote these words. The one fixed pole in all the bewildering confusion is the faithfulness and dependability of God. He went on to say, one day perhaps, when we look back from God's throne on the last day, we shall say with amazement and surprise, if I had ever dreamed that God was only carrying out his design and plan through all these woes, I would have been more calm and confident. I would have been more cheerful and far more tranquil and composed. Church, God's faithful. And aren't you glad that God's faithfulness to you is not conditioned upon your faithfulness to him? But he cannot be unfaithful to us because we're unfaithful to him because he's never unfaithful. So even when we fail, and we will, even when we come to the Lord and we say, ah, Lord, it's me again. That's the same thing we talked about yesterday. He never stops being faithful to us. Never. God's faithfulness guarantees that everything is going according to plan. Amen? Let's pray. God, as I said in the first service, that uh, I'm thankful for tough passages. Stretched me, but in a good way. And I pray that it has stretched us this morning to thinking in some places we might not have thought of.
coming into this room. And I pray, God, above all of that, that we walk away with some handles, with the truth of your faithfulness and how that's lived out in our lives. It's not a license to be unfaithful to you, not at all. That's crazy thinking. But to remember even when we are unfaithful, you remain faithful for that is what you are. And we thank you for that. We thank you for all your promises. Everything you say that you will do, you will do. We recall that even in the last song here this morning. We ponder your faithfulness to us that we can trust in that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.